The year was uh, 1998, 798. Um, I went on a short-term mission trip to Uzbekistan. Anybody been to Uzbekistan? Okay. <laughs> Max, you have? Okay. I went on a short-term mission trip to Uzbekistan. And it was while in Uzbekistan. It was a great time. We were there for about two weeks doing short-term missions. Uh, it was, uh, we were in Uzbekistan. We were in the capital city of Tashkent, and we were out and about doing ministry, okay? And we were really, really thirsty, some of us, and we were told, of course, to be careful what water we drink. So the habit was that we would go, and instead of drinking water, we bought what's like the universal beverage whenever you, you know, travel. Coke, of course, Right? Coke. So we went to a store and we bought Coke and we guzzled like two, three bottles out. It was hot. Very, very hot, right? So we guzzled two, three bottles out and it was great, refreshing. Well, four hours later, I started feeling this little thing in my stomach. So I'm feeling this little thing in my stomach. Uh, and, and I kind of knew because it had been like my eighth mission strip, you know, I kind of knew, boy, that, that probably was not a good idea. So, of course, I was talking to some of the natives and they said, uh, what, did you, what did you drink? We, we drank some Coke. I said, oh, well, what did you know? And then I knew where they were getting at. They gave me the bottle. I took a look at it. In small print, of course, it said, bottled in Uzbekistan, <laughs> Is as sick as a dog for like two days, right, after drinking Coke. I share that story with you because as I think about this holiday season and what non-Christians think about when they think of Christmas and Christians and Christmas, not everything that has the label Jesus on it is really about Jesus. Not everything that has a label Jesus on it is really about the essence of Christianity, which is the gospel. Matter of fact, I'd say this. For some of you that have maybe uh, uh, consumed what you thought was a version of Christianity and it made you sick to your stomach, it may be because it wasn't uh, Christianity. As I think about today and the good news of what this represents, the Christmas story really is good news. But religion masquerading as Christianity, not so much. Not so much. Not so much. But there's a reason why, a lot of you sitting here today, and we talk a lot about this in our church, there's a reason why religion is still so popular. Religion is as popular as ever. And I'll define religion a little bit. And that's because at the end of the day, we say this a lot in our church, we are frankly really uncomfortable, I think, and maybe even a little disoriented by the way God loves. Because God comes and says, I love you, what? unconditionally. And I don't know about you, but, but I am at times disoriented by that because I don't know unconditional love experientially. Can anybody relate to that? The concept of unconditional love, and absolutely, I'm married to a wonderful wife, wonderful parents who tried their best to love unconditionally, but the concept of unconditional love, frankly, is foreign and disorienting to many of us to think that God would love us unconditionally. And by the way, at the end of the day, that's what religion says. Religion comes and says, God loves, but unconditioned. God loves, but conditionally. You got to attain his love. You got to work towards his love. You got to earn it. And so some people pray five times a day facing east. Some people pray the rosaries. And some people memorize and recite incantations all in an effort to earn, to please, and to, ex- to, to, to receive God's conditional love. But at the end of the day, deep down inside, if you and I were just to think for a moment, if God loves us conditionally, are we not all just screwed up? 
I mean, if God loves us conditionally, are we all not just totally and utterly messed up? Because deep down inside, we know we are not lovable. Deep down inside, you and I both know that there are parts about us that are not worthy of such love. Deep down inside, we know, we know that if God loves us conditionally, we're all in trouble. And yet the problem that a lot of people have with Jesus is that the church has said for centuries that God is somebody, Jesus is somebody. If you want his love, you got to earn it. you got to work for it. you got to behave. you got to obey the rules. I wonder, you know, what would happen, what would actually happen if the world was told the actual Christmas story that God came to us while we were yet still sinners? What would happen if the world actually heard the actual gospel message that says that it's not about us being worthy of, us being good enough, us being rules obeying enough, but it's about the fact that this God came to us in Christ because he actually knew we couldn't be good enough, moral enough, and rule obeying enough. I wonder if religion and legalism would still be as popular if people realize how God really loved, and unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Because it's harder for us to believe that God loves us unconditionally than it is to think that God loves us unconditioned, so we will behave and work towards it. That's why I preach what I do every Sunday. If you sit there going, I get it, Peter. I go, no, you don't. Because if you did, you would live differently. If you really believe that God loved you unconditionally, and it's not about anything we've done, but what Christ has done. Our lives would look so different. Every time I'd say, God loves you, you wouldn't just go, eh. You would say, me. He loves me. Christmas story wouldn't be the old, same, familiar story. He loves me. The Christmas story is the masterpiece of the gospel, is what I like to say. It's the, master, it's, it's the masterpiece of the gospel story. And I'm so glad. I already know, because some of you guys already told me that you'll bring your non-Christian friends and family. I'm so glad that you're here today, because this is my favorite sermon out of the year to preach. Because I get to talk to you who don't know Jesus, and that's the favorite part of my job, is talking to people who don't know Jesus. I like y'all Christians and all, too. You know, don't get me wrong, but, you know. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, okay? And we're going to go and look at this very familiar story. And we'll just, uh, we'll just meditate on this, this, this truth of, of this masterpiece of what the gospel really is. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And I'll tell you in a little bit why he did that. This was the first census that took place while... Quirinius was the governor of Syria, verse 3, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Okay? Everybody look up here. Uh, 
Here's what the Bible says. There's there's this kind of main thrust that's found throughout the Bible, and it says this. In all things, God is out to accomplish three things. And everything that God does accomplish three things. One is he is out to uh, bring greater glory to himself. God is out to bring greater glory to himself in everything that happens. Secondly, he is out to bring us good. He is out to bring us good. He is out to do good work in us, Romans 8 tells us. And third, he is out to redeem and save a lost and broken world. Everything, everything in the Bible says that God is out to accomplish these three things. And right here in Luke chapter 2, Luke kind of gets to this, this theme that's found throughout Scripture. Verse 4 tells us, verse 4 tells us, essentially Luke is saying, this was a prophecy that was given 700 years ago. 700 years ago. And I could spend time this morning talking about all these hundreds of year old, hundreds of years old Old Testament prophecies about Christ that was fulfilled. But right here we found one. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. But you Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, one whose origins are of old from ancient times. And what Luke is trying to say is this. What Luke is saying is, look, this very familiar story. Okay. What Luke is saying is, look, look, on the surface, what seems to be just an act of civil obedience, you know? This emperor, Augustus, says, you know what? I want to enlarge my empire. And the way I'm going to enlarge my empire is by taxing the people in this empire. So he orders everybody who is part of the Roman Empire to go back to their hometowns. And, and, and what Luke is saying is, on the, on the surface, what appears to be just kind of a whimsical thing by this emperor, behind it is God working. Behind it is God working. Behind it is God working. And Luke is trying to say, look, who you think is in charge of this right now, the most powerful man in the world, is not really in charge. Who you think is really controlling things in the universe is not really in control. Author of Proverbs, Solomon, said this in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I love that. On the surface, people are saying the most powerful man in the world, Augustus, is in charge. He's in control. He is making things happen in the world. And Luke says, and the Bible authors say, no, you couldn't be more wrong. Where's that? Someone else at work. Press it further. Here's what the Bible says over and over again. And what seems to be an accident or coincidence, God was at work to fulfill his purposes. Augustus wants to enlarge his empire. So he does it coincidentally by taxing his people. Now, as he's taxing his people, the people coincidentally need to go back to their hometowns. And of course, coincidentally, Joseph is from where? Bethlehem. And of course, Bethlehem coincidentally is the place 700 years ago birth was prophesied and Messiah. And of course, they happen to, on their way to Bethlehem, Mary happens to be what? Pregnant. And of course, she happens to coincidentally carry the Messianic child. And author Luke is saying, all these coincidental, accidental events that just kind of randomly seem to happen. He's saying, God is working. God is weaving. God is orchestrating. Can I ask you something? Uh, How strong would you be today if you actually believe that? How strong would you be today if you saw every event in your life? It's not random accidental events, but how strong would you be if you saw every single event in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as God taking them, orchestrating, weaving. God is at work. God is at work. God is at work. 
Some of you already see that now, don't you? It's powerful when I see people who've been through hell and back, personal life-wise, and they're able to say with confidence, Peter, that thing, that thing, that thing, at the time, I was shouting out, where are you, God? How could you possibly be at work? As I look back on my life, I saw God taking it and weaving it, forming it, weaving it, forming it, and he was at work. How strong would you be today if you really believe that? The Bible is full of these stories. Story of Esther. I wish I could tell you right now. I don't have time. Story of Ruth. But my favorite of them is Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? The guy with the multicolored coat, right? Okay. He made metrosexual popular before it was actually popular, okay? It's Joseph. Okay? It's Joseph. I didn't think it was that funny. But anyway, so, so I really like Joseph. So anyway, so Joseph, his story, when you look at his story, is seemingly, you read, read the story when you go back home today because it was so encouraging. Because when you read his story, it seems like, oh my gosh, coincidental accident, coincidental accident. Let me give you an example. Jacob, his father, says one day, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers. And of course, his brothers are kind of scheming. So, so Joseph happens, or coincidentally, go to Shechem. Now, his brothers have moved from Shechem to Dothan. So if they're still in, 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 in to Dothan, they, they've moved on to graze their sheep elsewhere. So, Jake, uh, so Joseph shows up in Shechem where the brothers are supposed to be, and of course, their brothers have gone. Now, so Joseph accidentally then meets somebody who actually happened to be there when their brothers were there and says, oh, your brother's not here. They're in Dothan. So Joseph goes to Dothan. Now, as he goes to Dothan, all the brothers say, we got to kill him. We hate him. Multicolored coat. We don't like him. Judah, his brother, one, only one happens to be accidentally be the one that says, no, 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 that's not a good idea. So he, of course, happens to convince all of his brothers not to kill him, but to sell him. They, they were nice, you know. So, of course, he meets them, and he goes there, and, and, and they do that. Now, he, they, they've dug a hole, and they've thrown him in there, and they're eating dinner casually because, you know. And, of course, coincidentally, a merchant comes by. Who's happened to go to Egypt? Just, you know, accidentally, of course, you know. And so they, they say, do you want, would you like this guy? And so they, of course, buy Joseph. And Joseph goes with them to slavery in, in Egypt. Of course. And then, of course, accidentally, he winds up at the Potiphar, the master's, right, house, right, one of Pharaoh's officials. And, of course, accidentally, coincidentally, the wife has hot for Joseph. And, and, and Joseph is thrown into prison. Why is in prison? Joseph, of course, accidentally coincidentally meet somebody who could actually get him out, okay? And he actually does what he needs. So he says, don't forget about me. The guy goes, and of course, the guy accidentally, coincidentally forgets. Years pass. And the Pharaoh accidentally, coincidentally has another dream, and he's somebody to interpret it. And the guy that was actually delivered because of Joseph accidentally, coincidentally, of course, remembers, oh, yeah, that guy Joseph, he could interpret dreams. Everything that seemed like coincidence, accidents. Here's the powerful thing about this story. If every single one of these accidents and coincidences didn't happen exactly the way it happened, everybody in this story dies. Because there's a famine coming years later. And Joseph needs to be put in a position where he could do something about it to help his family, the entire nation, and save the Messianic line. Here's the principle that Christmas story teaches us. God's redeeming love for you is completely compatible with tragic things, hard things, difficult things, unwanted things. 
God's redeeming love for you is completely compatible with unexplainable things, things that people do to you, because the Bible says God is at work orchestrating and weaving every single one of these events in the exact same order it needs to happen so that he could bring glory to himself, good to us, salvation for the world. How strong would you be today if you really believe that? Amen? It's one of those, hmm, I got to sit on that, right? Because you're looking back at this year and you're going, that sucked, hated that, why that? And you're going, ah, if 2010 looks like that, I want to. And you're already depressed, already discouraged. How strong would you be today if you look back on this year and you said, God, every single one of these things in the exact same way it happened needed to happen so that you're weaving it, orchestrating it in such a way that you will be more glorified. I will be more, becoming more like you and I'll be greater used by you and you'll bring salvation and redemption to my family to the people around me. Is that good news? That's wonderful news. That's wonderful, wonderful news. God's redeeming love for you. And it's just one real quick thing about Joseph's story before I go on. Do you know that in the entire story of Joseph, God never speaks? No miracles, no theophanies, no God showing up in fire. God never speaks. And somehow, In this story, we're reminded, I say this all the time, God's silence is not, say it with me, his absence. And God's hiddenness is not his abandonment. God is there. Matter of fact, can I just say this? You know what you do find when God's name is mentioned? It says simply, God was with Joseph. That's all it says. Joseph was thrown in prison. God was with Joseph. Joseph. Joseph was betrayed because somebody lied. God was with Joseph. God is with us is what Emmanuel means. We would be so much stronger if we really believed this. Verse 6. So the time came for the baby to be born and the And she gave birth to her uh, firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Now, you know, we we look at this story, you guys, from the back end. You know, the back end of history, because we kind of know what happens. But you got to think about the context. And I'm going to kind of force us to think about the context of today. Think about the context. That is, in the context of what what, these is two simple verses just kind of out there. Every single Jewish boy and every single Jewish girl has been told, ever since they were way little, that the Messiah is coming. It was their hope. By the way, Jenny and I, uh, this past, uh, uh, was it Wednesday, had dinner with a couple of our Jewish friends, okay? We celebrate Hanukkah together. It was, it, was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. I ate lox, you guys, lox. Yeah, not so much. Um, I, I said, man, I'm going to take you to some Korean barbecue. We can celebrate, you know, co- the Korean way. But, but the lox, we had lox, and we had all these things. And so, and so we were sitting there just chit-chatting, you know, about religion and so on and so forth. And, and, and they said, so what's the difference between Christianity? We started talking about Abraham. I said, actually, Islam, Christianity, and by the way, I don't know what I'm talking about this, but Islam, Christianity, and, 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 uh, and Judaism have one thing in common. We all trace our origins back to the Old Testament, right? I said, you know where we just all get screwed up? Jesus. I just, he just totally screws all this up. 
Because I told him, I said, I said, you guys are still waiting for the Messiah. We believe that he came. You guys think he's silent? We believe that he came shouting. Every single little Jewish boy and girl wake up and their parents remind them, is today the day? That's why they waited expectantly. Now, relate that to some of us that have been Christians for a while. <laughs> How many of us get up in the morning and go, Jenny, Jesus might be coming back today. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But you know, I got bills to pay, kids to raise, a job to do. You know what I mean? So maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but it's not something I get excited about. That's exactly what had happened to Jews. Actually, their situation was even worse because they had waited in anticipation for this Messiah. But by the time that, that the angels arrived, it had been 2,000 years. 2, 000, some of you all think God's wait, taking a long time. 2,000 years since God appeared to Abraham, gave a promise. Abraham, I will show up one day, and you will be. You'll be a blessing to all the nations but through, through your descendants. 2,000 years they had waited. Not only that, but the time the angel shows up, Israel cannot be in a worse situation. They were occupied. They were under oppression. They had absolutely no life, spiritually, militarily, politically, absolutely no power whatsoever. So if there was a time when they desperately needed a Messiah, this was it. But if there was a time when it was really, really hard to believe that a Messiah would come, this was it. If there was a time where they doubted, can God really show up? This was it. Here's the message of Christmas and what author of Luke just throws out there. God never forgets. God never God is always faithful to his promises. God will always do what he says. God never forgets. Mary, mother of Jesus, when she's told that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world, sings this song called the Magnificat. Song of chapter before, Luke chapter 1. And this is part of her song. Listen to what she says. Because she anticipated this. She was a woman of faith. Chapter 1, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And if you have your Bible, underline this, highlight this, circle it. Even as he said to our fathers, even as he said to our fathers, we waited 2,000 years. Mary said, we waited 2,000 years. If there's a time when we're going, God, you could never show up at this. God shows up. And Mary says, even as, she's saying, God never forgets. He just said he's going to do this, and he is doing it. What he promised their father Abraham, even as he is making it come to pass. God never forgets. To which is kind of an emotional thing right here with some of us because we're going, I am positive that God's forgotten about me. 
So it's just kind of the emotional thing, right? Because we're going, I know for a fact, Peter, God's forgotten about me. You're looking at your life circumstances. You're looking at situations that happen in your life. You're looking at the unanswered prayers. You're looking at the times and the longings that you've had. You've waited and waited and waited for that thing. And you're positively convinced that God has forgotten. So how do you reconcile this? Here it is. Here's the way the Bible reconciles it. God never forgets, but God is outside of time and space. He's eternal. He's infinite. So you don't know when God will show up. But he will. You know why we're frustrated? Because we want one or the other. God never forgets. God never forgets. God never forgets. Like, no. You have until Saturday. God never forgets. God never forgets. Or some of us go, just tell me he forgets, okay? And just tell me that he's eternal, infinite. And we have to live in this tension. Don't you love tension of the Bible? God says, I never forget. I will always keep my promises. But, God says, for me, a day is, oh, like a thousand years. Sorry, but that verse doesn't finish there. But a thousand years is like a a day. And God says, the way we live in this tension, God, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten about me? God, have you forgotten about what you said you would do? God says, I never forget, even as. But I don't work on your timetable, your schedule your day planner. God, have you forgotten about me? I never forget. But my time, my timing. Um, <clears throat> is that good news? <laughs> I know you like the first one better, you know. Uh, God, God is orchestrating. Yes, I can get on board with that. God never forgets, but... We don't know when. He'll show up, but we don't know when. He'll say it, and he's going to, but we don't know when. And this is what we come to the curse with. Do you trust him? That God's always on time. You know how God sees time? God sees now and eternity all at once. God sees now and eternity all at once. I like to share this about three years ago. Uh, Jenny and I went on the Michigan parade, day parade, you know, with our kids. It was like 10 below. I was a not happy camper because it was freezing. And we stood on Michigan Avenue waiting for the parade, you know, to pass, right? Lame floats, by the way. I'm sitting there going, when is this thing going to end? When is this thing going to end? You know, WGN floats coming by. I'm like, I don't even watch WGN, you know. And, and all of these floats are going by. And I share with somebody. Right next to where we're standing, Kitty Corner, was the John Hancock Center. And it was like in a moment I realized, wow, my perspective on life is like three by five glossies, you know, digital camera. And I realized the perspective that God has is he paints on the canvas of the universe. You and I see life by each float that comes by. 
the perspective of God is is somebody who sits on top of the John Hancock Center, sees the whole thing, and goes, I know how that begins, I know how that ends. So I know the perfect time. God, this doesn't make any sense. I'm looking at it really hard. Like, it doesn't make it here, here. It doesn't make. God goes, of course it doesn't, you fool. And he, does, he says that to me. He may not say that to you. <laughs> Artist, best analogy, God paints on the canvas of the universe. You never know when he'll show up, but he'll show up. He'll show up. Another way to put it, I guess, before I kind of move on to the next point is this. Uh, God keeps his promises in unexpected ways. God always keeps his promises, always, because he's a faithful God, which is a testament to his enduring love, which is a testament to his grace, given how unfaithful we are. But does God always keep his promises in ways that we expect him to? Sometimes he does, but quite often he doesn't. Can I just tell you something? God will oftentimes show up when you least expect it. That's what this story teaches us. Nobody in this time is expecting the Messiah to come. Things look bleak. Things couldn't possibly get better. There couldn't possibly be deliverance. And it's at that time when the entire nation of Israel says, not now, God says, Would you be strong if you believe that God shows up when he thinks it's appropriate? The message of Christmas is you'll never know when God comes because he's outside of time, but God never forgets. God always keeps his promises. He's faithful. A couple practical applications and move on. You know what this means? The Bible says that God is at work within us, and he will bring this work to completion. That means that as we look at ourselves right now and our flaws, our weaknesses, our sins, all the things about us that we, we wish were different, all the things about us that we wish were stronger, God says at some, some point all of these weaknesses and sins and frailties will fall before the grace and mercy of our God. God will renew, restore, heal, change us, but in his time. In his time. Every single one of our falls and weaknesses will fall before the grace of God, but God says, in his time. So be encouraged. God's at work in you. God's at work in you. Another practical application would be, as I was just talking to a young man yesterday who is heavily involved in issues of justice in the city, and he was sharing with me that sometimes it gets really hard to remain hopeful. Like, oh, Peter, I sometimes wonder, like, can the city of Chicago, specifically Logan Square, and all the injustice and evil that plagues this community, will it ever change? And I remind him of the Christmas story and says, God always keeps his promises. But in his time. God says he'll renew and restore all of creation. He rose from the dead, proving that he is at work and will one day return to finish the job. You guys, in case you're wondering, my job for you guys every Sunday is to remind you of these things. My job is to remind you over and over again how the story of the universe is going to end. God will triumph. Good will triumph. Secondly, my job is to remind you who is in charge of it. Who controls the nature of things. 
And third, to remind us of what we already have in Christ and the unchangeable, unchangeable blessings of the gifts we have, our identity and our worth in Christ. My job is to get up here every Sunday and remind you of those things over and over and over again. Because your life, my life, our insignificant five-second lives that's here and gone, to live significantly with meaning in this life, in this world today, as you've been headed towards 2010, unless you have the perspective of God, we know how this thing ends. God, we know who's in charge. And God, we know who we are in you. It's my job to remind you of that every Sunday. Now let's look at the rest of this passage. And uh, I'm going to get to my favorite part, actually. You know, Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, makes a point of saying, hey, hey guys, uh, here are the people who get the gospel message. You know, it's not, it's, not, it's not who you think. Here are the people who get the message. And it's not, it's not the religious leaders, not the religious, instit- you know, people that are going about doing religious activity. The, the Luke, especially author of Luke, makes a point of saying the people who understand and get the gospel and, and embrace it readily are the marginalized, are the outcasts, are the socially sort of, so the social pariahs, the tax collector and the prostitutes. The people that embrace and get the gospel message are people in that society that, that the people are saying, you would never get this. Those are the people who get Get it. And so Luke constantly highlights, you know, in his book, the poor, the uneducated, and, and, and women, the ones that were marginalized in the society and saying, they get it before you, they get it before you, they get it before you. And he sets the tone for this beginning of his book. Look at verse 8. So there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. You know, this, I always laugh at this when I come to this, you know. Can you, what would you, how would you react if, if this thing happened to you? All of a sudden, you're sitting, sitting, chilling out at night. The sky just lights up. An angel, Gabriel, or the angels appear and go, Whoa! You know? Of course they're terrified. Of course they're scared. And I love the response. Don't, don't be. Okay. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Can we say this together, you guys? Ready? Do not be afraid. Say it together. Here we go. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And here during Christmas time, we are reminded of whether you and I, as Christians, followers of Jesus, really understand the gospel and whether we have really embraced the gospel. Because he reminds us, Luke says, that is, that the gospel is not just good news. The gospel is good news of what? Great joy. Ha! The gospel, if you embrace it and know it, it's not just good news of great, you know, I've got to suck it up and do it. i got to be a Christian. I hate doing it, but I just don't have a choice because I want to go to heaven and not hell. The gospel says, I'm not making light of this, but it just, it just charged me up because the gospel says, it is good news of great joy. And Luke comes and says, during Christmas, you know if you get the gospel by saying, how's your joy life? How's your joy life? That's what the Bible says over and over again, stuff like this, Philippians 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. When? <laughs> Do what you and I go, come on. 
our experience says, when circumstances get hard and difficult and painful, joy barometer, hmm. But Paul has the audacity to say, oh, no, no, let me tell you something. There's a kind of joy that will increase as circumstances get harder, just as light shines brighter, the darker it gets. And the test of the gospel is it's good news of great joy for all people. Can I just tell you something? Just a list of four or five, you know, just quick. Here's why it's joy. And if you're a Christian who understands the gospel, it'll be joy. Talk to a Christian in your sense of gospel and you ask him, hey, hey, are you a Christian? To that question, somebody who has embraced the gospel, they don't respond by saying, I'm trying. <laughs> are you a Christian? I'm tr- trying. You're, tr- you're, you're trying? Suck the life and joy right out of you. I'm trying response. To the question when somebody says, are you a Christian? Our response is, yeah, me. Can you believe it? <laughs> Can I get an amen to that? That's where joy comes. Are you a Christian? Instead of saying, I'm trying religion. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Can you believe it? Despite my sins, despite my flaws, despite my weaknesses, me, a Christian. Ha! <laughs> joy. Here's another example. Uh, when you discover in yourself some new character flaw, and I find them all the time in me. Oh, look at that. I'm a coward. I didn't know that yesterday. <laughs> well, look at that. Oh, purity of thought. Oh, I didn't know that was uh, not as under control. Fear, pride, coward. Here's what happens. If you're a Christian, when those discoveries are made, you don't go, how can God love me? You go, despite that, he loves me. Despite that, he loves me. Gospel, great joy. Here's another one. We talked about this last week. When you do something, just, you, you just fail miserably. And your conscience comes and says... How can God love somebody like you? You know what most of us do? We try to battle our conscience by moral performance. You know what we say? We make excuses. Like when conscience says, how can you do that and God loves you? You know what we say in our hearts? We go, I had a bad day. You don't know what I'm going through. That's what we say. But instead of that, when our conscience says, how can God love you and our conscience condemns us, someone who understands the gospel, great joy, responds by saying, yes, can you believe it? I am that wicked, and I am that sinful. But in Christ, I am that loved, and I am that accepted. Praise God. A couple more. Gospel, when somebody criticizes you, <laughs> is there anything that sucks the joy right out of us, like when somebody criticizes us? Anybody? Anybody? Right? See, now I've changed myself. When somebody criticizes me, because before I used to go, you don't know me. Who you think you know what I do? When somebody criticizes me or something, you know, I say to myself, I remind myself, I go, man, good thing that's the only thing that person knows. <laughs> Isn't that the gospel, amen? That's the 
gospel, when somebody comes to criticize you, you don't sit there and go, you don't know. Because you know who you are and your desire to superiority. Oh, that ugly thing that kind of rears its head. Because you're going, I don't want you to think that way. What if you were so accepted, so loved, and so secure in God that when somebody criticizes you, your response is one of, thanks. Because you don't know the other things about me that you could criticize. And we walk away in joy. Do you understand why the gospel is good news of great joy? Oh, jeez. Drink the Kool-Aid of religion some more, why don't you? And suck the joy right out of you. I don't know why I'm talking with that Irish accent. I, I don't know where that's coming from. Sorry. That's going to haunt me, Michael, for the rest of the day. Church, can I just ask you something? Do you understand that the gospel is good news of great joy? I just listed four things. Just as a test of going, am I a gospel-believing child of God? Or am I just functioning so much out of religion? These are just simple, practical tests that gauge if you really understand and I've embraced it. Okay, so what is this news? I want to end with this. That brings great joy for all people. Last verse, verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Okay, you guys, everybody look up here. For those of you guys that have come to our Christmas services, you know that at some point I always in some ways talk about this right here. Because, okay. If there are a group of people of all society in that society who this message of the Savior who, take, who takes away our sins and gives us gospel, a goodness of great joy, of all the people that have qualified in that society to receive that message, the shepherds would have been way at the bottom of the list. See, they, they were reared in a Jewish environment that reminded them every day who God accepted and who God, God didn't, okay? Every day. And they knew that here are the people that God accepted. You have to be Jewish. You have to be Jewish. So certain ethnic groups were accepted by God. Certain religious groups were accepted by God and others weren't. And then certain classes of people were accepted by God and others weren't. Every day they're reminded, they're living, breathing, these shepherds in a culture and a society that reminds them every day who God accepts and who God doesn't. Every day. Now, scholars and commentators over the years, as they, as they looked at this passage, commentators, they picked up on two things. Now, you notice one thing is that these shepherds are grazing, are, are taking care of these sheep at night, the Bible says. Did you catch that? And because of that, a lot of commentators have gone back and said, well, looking at the first century sort of Israel and how things were done, a lot of commentators said, most likely, these weren't just ordinary shepherds and these weren't just ordinary sheep. Every single day, Jews were reared in an environment where if they wanted to make atonement for their sins and be right with God, they needed to offer and sacrifice at the temple. Now, it got to a point in the first century where people were no longer raising their own sacrifice and taking them to the temple. So there was an entire economy built right around Jerusalem where people could come from where they're at, purchase their sacrifice, go to the temple, sacrifice, and get their sins right with God. So scholars have commentated that's looking at this, that here's what, we're, well, here's what we're saying. These shepherds are not just ordinary shepherds, and these sheep are not just ordinary sheep. These sheep are sheep that are being reared and birthed and taken care of so that people could purchase them, go to the temple, and sacrifice it and get their sins atoned for. And these shepherds are shepherds 
whose job is to take care of these sheep that people are purchasing so they could take them to the temple and sacrifice them. But here's the problem. In the first century, there were these rabbinical laws that forbade certain people from entering the temple to sacrifice and get their sins right with God, and others were excluded. They had these ridiculously meticulous ceremonial laws that said that you had to have certain you know, levels of purity about you. And if you were a shepherd out in the wilderness 24-7, 365 days a year, you had absolutely no shot whatsoever of being ceremonially pure enough to enter the temple to sacrifice and get your sins atoned for. So here's the irony. Every day of your life, you're reminded. Hey, how much is that sheet? Two bucks. Where are you going? Get my sins atoned for. Okay. Every day of your life, you're reminded of what God requires, what God demands. But every day of your life, you're also reminded that you can't do what they're doing because the religious system and the religious system said, you're not clean enough, you're not pure enough, you're not ceremonially holy enough. So they're stuck in this catch-22. They're birthing, caring for sheep that other people have so they get their sins atoned for. But they have absolutely no way of getting their sins atoned for. They have absolutely no way of getting their relationship with God right because the religious system and the religious law said, you're out. You're unworthy. You're unclean. How would you feel? Some of you know exactly how this feels. You came with your Christian friend, and the reason why you just, for years, didn't come to church is because religious leaders, perhaps, or church, institution of church, has told you, you're not clean. You're not worthy. You don't have your act together. You're immoral. Uh, you, you're not ceremonially clean enough. So there's a religious ban on you because your types are not welcome. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe you're that person for whom the gospel has never been an invitation of good news because it's just a reminder of how much you fall short. Do you know what the good news about the gospel is at this Christmas? The only requirement for coming to Jesus? Bring what you got. Only gospel requirement? Come messy. Come dirty. Come with all your issues. Jesus Christ doesn't come and say, come to me all you who are obeying the rules really, really well. Come to me all of you who are ceremonially clean enough. Come to me all of you who are morally fit and, you know, doing the things to be accepted by God. Jesus, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Think of how these shepherds must have felt when the Savior of the world is coming to the world and the message comes and saying, look, no, 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 you don't have to go to Jerusalem to get, you know, all cleaned up before he'll accept you. The Savior of the world has come who will take your sins upon himself and die the death you should have died. And in him, you can be found perfect and righteous and holy before God. The only requirement for the gospel, bring what you got. Come life. Messy. Come with your issues. Is that good news? Is that good news? Some of us have forgotten that this is the essence of the gospel. You know who Jesus accepts? I heard this story. 
a pastor actually told that in his sermon, and it really, really just struck a chord with me. His pastor was talking about how he had sort of walked away from church because religion and, and, and laws and rules and absolutely no, no, no grace involved in it at all. And, and, and he, he deep down inside felt, if, if God is a God of conditional love, I don't want it because it's not real. So he walked away from the church, and he, 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 he started coming back, and God began to minister to him. He's a freshman in college. Well, one day, one day, in class, he began to strike up a conversation and meet with a 26-year-old single mom. Let's just call her Sarah. Sarah is a single mom who was actually having an affair with another married guy. Life, lots of issues. She was in school just trying to get by so they can get back on her feet and live her life again. So this pastor friend began to minister to her, and his friends would come over to her house, babysit so she can go on errands and do all things, and began to really, really minister to this woman who was deeply hurting and pretty involved in sin. Well, one day he decided to invite her actually to a Christian concert at a church. One of his friends, which actually the band leader, and so they invited the band, he invited her and said, hey, I want you to come out, listen to some good music, just a way of ministry. So he invited her to this band concert, one of his friends. And the concert was phenomenal. But after the concert, a pastor, another pastor got up, and the pastor began with the words, today, I want to talk to you about sex. To which this young Christian is coming back. He said he felt this thing in his heart like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And the pastor began to expound on, on what he thought sex was. And it was one of the worst teachings of sex ever. And, and to illustrate his point, he got a rose, a rose. A beautiful fresh rose. And he held it up and said, look, look. He smelled it and then he gave it out into the audience. And the audience, he said, everybody, touch it, smell it, feel it. And the rose went around. Rose went around. And as the rose is going around, he is expounding on sex and sexual intimacy and God's standard for it. And it is nothing but fear mongering, you know. He's doing the whole, you don't want syphilis, do you? You don't want gonorrhea. You don't want herpes, do you? He's just going on. Just the worst exposition of the gospel. And so he's going on with this, you know. And then the rose is finally coming around. And he says, give me back the rose. And he gets the rose. And the whole time this young man is sitting there, he's looking at Sarah and going, good God, please, please, please let this nightmare end. The pastor gets the rose. And this pastor starts smelling the rose. And he looks down and he goes, look at this. Look at this rose. It's broken its limp. Look at this rose. Now, who would want this rose? Who would want this rose? And this pastor says, he sat there, this young man sat there, and from the bottom of his heart, he wanted to scream out, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. You just slam, and you think God would want nothing to do with Jesus wants that rose. A savior. Some of y'all sitting there today going, who would want? Who would want this? Could it be that the Savior of the world who has come and says, You don't know all the, I know, I know. Come just as you are. He is Savior. Who is? Christ the Lord. 
Grace, come on up, and I want to I I end. We're done here. What, what does it mean for those of you and me who, who's, a, who's a Christian? Yeah, what does this gospel story, Christmas story, have to do with us? Uh, I see Josh back there, Josh Pyle, who, uh, Kathy, who, who had their, their first child. Congratulations, you guys. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. We're so glad that you guys are here. These guys are here. There she is. She's beautiful. I can't really see, but I, I, I'm sure she's beautiful. She's bald just like her daddy. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Josh, I want you to know, as I thought about this last illustration analogy, I thought about you, okay? Here's the reason why. Here's the gospel, gospel message. He's not just Savior, but, but the Bible says, by the way, this is the only time in the New Testament where you see these three words together, Savior, Christ, the Lord. And we're reminded today, church, follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, reminded today, we not only have the Savior who says, I want that rose, but we have a Savior who says, I am Christ, the, say it with me, the Lord, the Lord. Here's the reason why I, I thought about Josh. Josh is an extra in movies. That's one of his gigs, you know? And he was telling me, he's like, Peter, I got to be on Batman, Batman Black Knight. Uh, when you guys uh, record the podcast, can you edit that portion out, please? <laughs> Laughter coming out of people's homes. <laughs> if you want to put that in there, you have to leave this in there, too. Uh, I, I came to the United States when I was 10 years old. So... For those, for, go ahead, keep playing. It's okay. We're done, Grace. I know it's impossible to find appropriate music to this. Okay. Let, let's imagine. Let's imagine you and I, you and I for a gig, try to be extras in a movie, right? And let's say that we actually got on blockbuster film. Okay? Josh was a bus driver in that film, whatever. And we literally appear in this movie for like two-fifths of a second. And the only thing you see is the back of our heads, okay? We get all excited about this film, right? So on the opening night of this film, we invite our mom and our friend, you know, and like, isn't this great? <laughs> oh, there, there it is, there it is, that's me. And your mom and your friend are like, good God. <laughs> you know, I made 12 bucks for this. But let's for imagine, imagine for a moment that we don't just do that, but let's say for imagine for a moment we decide, we are going to rent out the whole theater and invite all of our friends to come and see the movie about me. For two-fifths of a second. So we rent out a whole theater, red carpet, and all of our friends come, and, and, and you've told them, at one hour, 37 minutes, and 49 seconds, you'll see the back of my head. I don't care how good of friends they are. Your friends will look at you and go, are you? But would you think for a moment, because it struck me, I think when it comes to life, do you realize that we are more delusional than that fictional character I just described? Because we think that the life and the life story we live in is about us. We think this drama, this incredible story of God 
that God is doing, we actually think, some of us, if we're honest, admit it, we actually think that this story of life is about us, that everything revolves around us and our needs and our agendas and our wants. Instead of looking up and realizing that we don't just serve the Christ who is a Savior, we serve Christ who is Savior, Christ Lord And that we have been given this incredible opportunity, incredible opportunity to join God in this ultimate drama, ultimate story of God, renewing and restoring all things, renewing and restoring all things by his death and resurrection. That this incredible drama of God where he's defeated, conquered, sin, sin, and death, Satan, sin, and death, and God is renewing all of creation and our insignificant five-second lives, if it was really about us that today and gone tomorrow... Wow, that's, that's pretty depressing. But if our five-second lives was not about us and revolving on us, but our five-second lives were caught up in this drama of God's story where God is at work to do this incredible thing, and he says, your life matters, my life matters, not because we're at the center of it, but because God is at the center of it, and he asks us to join him. And all of a sudden, our small, insignificant lives begin to take a new meaning and purpose. When we get up in the morning, we realize it's not about mine, he's my agenda, but it's about the fact that I serve a risen king, a risen Lord. <laughs> Darius, I'm glad this resonates with you. Because the only reason why I get up in the morning is not because I'm somebody special and people need me. The reason why I get up in the morning is because I remind myself, God, I'm caught up in this drama and my five-second life that's here and gone tomorrow matters to you. Yeah. It does. Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he your king? Is he somebody who exists just to meet your needs? Christmas, a cosmic divine Santa who is readily available whenever we ask. Because the story's about us, or is he really the risen King Lord that we are called to bow down and worship and give our entire lives in service to him? Wow. God, I, I, I come right now and I, and I pray. Um, for my friends and myself. Savior, Christ, the Lord. And God, for some of us, God, really, for some of us who are convinced, who are convinced, God, that the story of life is about us, who are convinced, God, somehow that we are the main characters, the main actors in this drama, and we really do, we got us what we give lip service to, live our lives as if you and other people live for our purposes. Would you, God, remind us today and give us a greater vision and a greater perspective? Help us to see a God who is seated on a throne and paced on the canvas of the universe. Enlarge our vision of you. Enlarge our perspective of you. Enlarge, God, our, our capacity <laughs> to see you. You are our king. You are our Lord. And just real practically, God, right now, right now, I want to invite you guys right now. I want you to pray with me. I want right now, right, if he's your king, if he's your Lord, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to just give you a minute or two before we take communion. How would that perspective change where you want to live? 
How would that perspective change what job you want to get? How would that perspective change who you spend time with? How would that perspective change where you spend your money? How would that perspective change in terms of what you want to do with your future? How would that perspective change how you spend Christmas? How would that perspective change how you live your life in 2010? How would that perspective change your New Year's resolution? How would Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, change your perspective about all of those things? How would it change your perspective? What would it mean? What would that mean? He is Lord. What would it mean in terms of who you date, who you marry? What would it mean in terms of what you do as soon as you walk out of here? What would it mean? What would it mean? I'm going to have uh, our prayer team come on up. And they're going to stand um, along the side and up front here um, to pray with and for anybody. Come with any needs you have, any needs you have. And while communion is being served, um, I, I will be positioned near the cross uh, to specifically pray for healing. And I mentioned physical healing, but for those of you that might need emotional healing, I want to invite you to come too. Because we want to pray for you as well. As God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, take your time in coming, approaching the table. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, the cup that represents that we no longer have to come offering animal sacrifices over and over and over again, but that the Lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf. And by believing and trusting in him, we might have life eternally. And as you take it, do it in remembrance of him. He is Christ, the Lord. In our church, we do what's called intention, which is you take the bread and you dip it in the cup and then you take it. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says a communion, what we're about to do is for those who have professed personal faith and relationship in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to do one of two things. If you have Christians about the faith Christianity, please come and approach any of our prayer team members and ask us. Or if you just need prayer, please come and ask us to pray. But I want you, out of respect, to go ahead and, and observe. Communion service will come forward. Whenever you're ready. Stand from where you are. Come on down the aisle and pray, pray for with and pray with us as we commune together at the Lord's table. The Lord invites us.
Can we all stand together, church? For those of us that are not standing yet. For anybody that needs prayer that didn't get a chance to pray, we will be here after the service. Come on up. Grace and worship team, you know, as, as we end sort of this Christmas season, can we sing, oh, come let us adore him as a recognition that this is what God has called us to do. More than just believe, more than just intellectually believe these truths, God calls you and I to come, fall on our faces and our lives and find him beautiful, find him amazing, find him attractive, find him the absolute beauty and treasure of our lives. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. We thank you for the greatest news that's ever been told. <laughs> we thank you for the greatest news that's ever been told. A Savior has come, which is great news of great joy for all people. He is Savior, our Lord. Merry Christmas, church. And as you celebrate this holiday season, May your joy continue to increase as you remember who he is and what he has done for you and in you. May you find great joy and delight, not in things, not in stuff, but may you find great joy and delight in the gospel that even though we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Have a great holiday season. See you back here next Sunday. Take care. Take care.